Welcome to the Next Money Podcast, our regular look at the fintech scene, particularly here in the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, my name's Rob Finlay. I'm the CEO of Next Money here in Singapore. And each week, we ask a leading fintech practitioner about their journey in changing financial services for the better. You can find out more about us and the latest fintech news at nextmoney.org, where some of you will know our big conferences and meetups across the world. Contact us today to be a part of those conferences and meetups and these podcasts and much more. But we're very happy today to have a guest in Ian Chapman-Banks, uh, the founder and CEO of Scream Technologies. Uh, Scream is a big data insights platform, which you'll tell us about, Ian, no doubt. But a big welcome to you, Ian. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Rob. It's good to be here. Well, look, really happy to have you here because we want to talk in a bit of detail about today's theme, which is artificial intelligence in particular. And what I want to get deeper into later is really not just the technology and the theory and also the implications, but also the application. So how do we use and understand and leverage this technology down the track? But as we do in the show, we want to talk more first before we get into that about you and who you are and your background. Tell us a bit about how long you've been in this region for. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Well, I... uh Actually, the region, if we encompass Middle East and Africa, I arrived in uh, in Dubai uh, in the latter stages of the first Gulf War, and I was working for Xerox Corporation then. And then uh, when I was, uh, I looked after countries such as, uh, you know, kind of the hotspots, Kuwait, Lebanon, Saudi, Yemen, uh, even Iran. In those days, Iran was uh, quite open. So uh, that was my region. And then I got a call one day from the CEO of, uh, of Xerox, and he said, uh, have you heard about China? I'm like, yeah, <laughs> it's a big country. <laughs> yeah. And he went, yeah, something's happening. There's this handover happening in Hong Kong in 97. Uh, I need you to go over there and figure out what it's all about. So in a windy, cold, drab November 1996, I, uh, I landed in Beijing. Uh, and in those days, it really was uh, a totally different world. Uh, but you must have been <clears throat> daunted by this question you were asked. We're going to have plenty of people on this show from China, from that region, yeah, from that market. Yeah. But as an outsider going in, how did you frame that question? Well, I think the, the, the challenge was that in, in, in those days, China was just coming out of the, uh, the, the transition. So people were still uh, wearing the uniform, green or blue, and they were still living and working and the company on the whole life. Still the ration books. Uh, currency had only just started moved to, to, to RMB. We still had the foreign exchange tokens in some places. So what we were, what, what Xerox was trying to do in, 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 uh, in those days, it was called Rank Xerox. It was a joint venture between the Rank organization who made all the Bond films and, uh, and Xerox is they wanted to, how do you grow the business in China? And I think the first, the first challenge that we had in China was at that point, nobody had, nobody had been in business. They'd all, all been through, uh, you know, the, the, the communist way of life. So really the challenge was not how do you sell more equipment. The challenge was how do you educate uh, and motivate the local Chinese into this new way of what is business? How do you make money? And of course, we if you look back, you know, uh, 96 until today, I guess, uh, wow, close on, uh, you know, c- close on uh, 30 years, I guess. Uh, we Now we know that the answer is that the, you know, the Chinese are instinctively and culturally great business people. I guess they didn't need a lot of education from anyone, and, and rightfully so. They seem to have worked it out pretty pretty much fine. But So you went to China, went there with Xerox. Yep. How long were you there for, and where did you bounce next? Well, what happened was, in those days, uh, because we didn't have what's called a WUFI, a foreign, uh, foreignly, foreign-owned 
a wholly owned foreign entity uh, called a Wuffy, I couldn't physically live in China. So I was confined in Beijing to what we call kind of the, the Guaylo Quarter, uh, where it's the only place you could live. But what, what happened is I'd have to fly back to Hong Kong every three months to get my visa. And also, from time to time, we'd contract, you know, pretty serious stomach ailments and, and migraine headaches. So I'd go to Matilda Hospital and get checked up and have another course of treatment and then fly back into, into China. And it was while I was in Hong Kong one day, I, I, got, I got a call from, a, and I loved working at Xerox, and I was just signing my papers to go back into China, literally full time. And I got a call from a, a very old-fashioned headhunter, uh, and he said, uh, there's this company called Apple. Mm. Uh, now, there's, he said, and he said, like, by the way, there's a very high chance they could actually go bankrupt because this guy called Steve Jobs has just come back and they'd, they said they've heard about you uh, from your background. And I'm like, really? What, what have they heard about me? And they said, well, they heard you're a scientist and they heard that you used to have a cheese and wine shop in England and you won a very famous competition as a as a runner-up for Entrepreneur of the Year back in, like, 1984 uh, and they want to know if you'd be interested in talking to them. I'm like, well, I know nothing about computers, uh, but I'll go and talk to them. So I, so I, I met the teams, and uh, you know, I thought I'd been at Xerox at that point almost ten years, and I thought, well, you know, I've been in Xerox. I was in London. I spent some time in Europe, and then I spent Middle East and Africa, uh, and then I got catapulted into Beijing, into this frenzy of what is Asia. And I thought, wow. Why not keep evolving? So I decided to to join Apple at that point. And now Apple at that point, uh, back in uh, early 1999, Steve Jobs had just come out. We just launched the iMac. There was probably less than, let's say, 100 people in Asia at that point. And uh, at that point, uh, the management team, Steve Jobs' management team and Tim Cook had just started, really uh, evolved into the Asia region. And it became very clear very early on they wanted me to do two things. One is to help the evolution on the development side in terms of evoluting, uh, evolving the platform from the old operating system to the operating system. So I spent a huge amount of time essentially in Cupertino. I virtually moved to Cupertino and lived in San Francisco because Cupertino in those days was incredibly, after five o'clock at night, all the doors were shut. There was nothing happening. There was only one restaurant right. uh, called Chili's in those days. Mm -hmm. And that's where everybody used to go to. You know, you'd have Steve Wilhite and uh, Phil Schiller, uh, even Tim Cook all having, you know, uh, cups of tea and, and iced tea and, you know, food in Chili's. And then literally you walked out of Chili's at six, six thirty, seven o'clock. It was dead. So I, I, I lived in San Francisco. And then... I was working on what we call global platforms in, in, in the developer relations uh, unit under a guy called Clint Richardson, who later went on to be uh, the CEO of uh, basically uh, T-Mobile, which then was uh, in Europe. And then an, you know, an amazing thing happened, and 9-11 and happened. Uh, and I was, uh, I was actually, funny enough, I was actually in Singapore at, when 9-11 happened at 9 o'clock in, in the Apple office. And I was watching the, the Twin Towers falling, and my visa was just about to go to be processed, mm -hmm. to live full-time. In, in the States? Yeah, yeah. Mm. And it became very clear that uh, that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> so Apple said, look, uh, why don't you run the uh, – why don't you go and do the retail program? I said, what retail program? They said, exactly. Because <laughs> in those days, uh, we were selling through, through distributors, and we were in, in Singapore, places like Courts, uh, and really, the, the presence was awful. So what 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 I heard from from Tim Kirk and, and and Steve Jobs and Phil Schiller was that we need to open Apple stores. 
And I, I, I got involved in, in the very first rollout of, of the Apple Store globally was actually in Asia. Japan, uh, down in uh, Ginza, uh, actually in, in Australia, in, uh, first of all in Sydney, mm-hmm. and then Melbourne, and then actually then in the Funan Center in Singapore. And the slight twist was that uh, our distributors owned the retail outlets, yep. but they they looked at our, our look and feel. And really, the, the that rollout was uh, the start of the Apple retail rollout uh, in the Apple Store rollout, which transformed retail in, in in lots of categories, almost all of them, right? Yeah, yeah. And really, it was all down to very simplistic things: that look and feel, uh, completely white, completely clean, and let the products be beautiful. And then what was really important is building the ecosystem because in those days, how'd you get a printer to work with an Apple? Nobody knew how to do it. What software could you get to work with an Apple? I mean, literally, Microsoft just announced they were going to move uh, you know, the, the, the office onto, onto Mac, and that was really kind of the, mm. after deep negotiation. If that hadn't have happened, there was a chance that Apple may well have gone under because I think uh, Microsoft and Bill Gates put $150 million into Apple at that point and moved the platform over. So essentially, in those days, we were a tiny... Tiny, tiny organization. I remember writing the plan to go from $250 million to $500 million. And if you think about now, I mean, just Greater China uh, is close to $20 billion mm. in, in revenue. So, uh, you know, it was really uh, very hands-on in those days. It was literally uh, diagrams, uh, meeting to the retailers, convince them to take the program, convince them to adhere to all the uh, all of the, the look and feel, and then really getting our partners, you know, HP, uh, you know, and all the software guys, the gaming guys to kind of develop on the platform. So we actually had a proposition for customers. Then you seem after that to bounce to a couple of different players. So was was Microsoft one of them? Yeah, what and- happened? Absolutely. And uh, it was kind of one of those weird things is that you never really go from Apple to Microsoft. And I did actually get attacked in a in a bar by an advertising executive in Hong Kong because I <laughs> he couldn't believe that he actually jumped across the bar and tried to hit me. Good job. He was kind of big and slightly inebriated. But did you come from, from the dark side or did you go to the dark side? Who, which, whose point of view is it? Well, exactly. He was... Well, he was like, you've gone to the dark side. Right. <laughs> right. And he was mortified. But what happened was, if you, if you think about Apple, it's a tremendous company. Uh, it is very closely controlled uh, and controlled in the respect, which is the, the, the brand and the look and feel. And the empowerment you have as an individual is, is relatively limited. Uh, and of course, you sign lots of NDAs and lots of non-disclosures. And Microsoft offered me the opportunity to really launch what was known as the consumer business in Asia and then the Xbox franchise. So, you know, I kind of sat there thinking I loved work with Apple. It's very exciting. And Steve Jobs was, you know, everybody knows was, was, was a genius. And Tim Cook was a guy that could literally run an eight-hour meeting and go line by line in the spreadsheets and cover every country, every SKU, every product, you know, in a very methodical uh, and very kind of polite and gentlemanly way. He's from southern, the southern part of America, so he's extremely polite. And he'll go to line 57 in the spreadsheet and say, can you tell me a little bit more about this particular SKU and why it hasn't been performing? So, you know, to, to go from that to actually be, you know, running the Xbox program, responsible for the hardware, the developers, and then the uh, and then really kind of launching the product was, was huge. So I think we went in those days, I think this would have been 2003, we went from, I think, zero to close to $200 million in the first year. Uh, quite small money now, but it was actually... Uh, running the program and launching Xbox, which is cool because you only launch a new product once in, in a region. Absolutely. So let's fast forward through then you went to Dell for a while and then you've got, now you've got your own startup. So how did you go from being a corporate guy, it seems, to now being an entrepreneur? 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and before that, I, be, I, I became, I got, because of my previous experience with, with Apple in, in China, I, I got invited to join Motorola. I eventually became the CEO of Motorola Asia Pacific. So I ran all the, essentially the mobile business. In China, it was around about $4 billion. In China, uh, we built 42,000 retail outlets in 18 months. So it was a fairly sizable organization. And then, of course, the whole history is that Motorola was four, $4 billion in China, $6 billion in Asia Pacific, and then went from $6 billion to $2 billion almost overnight. So I was part of the restructuring effort of, as being the CEO, I, I, I built it up and then I took it down again, which is actually very stressful. Uh, so uh, I basically resigned as a corporate VP of Motorola. And uh, what I said to, to my wife is, uh, we were living in Singapore at this time, I said, this is great. I'm going to take off nine months. I'm going to relax. And obviously my wife was like, you're not coming home every day. <laughs> right. Well, you're not coming home. You you got to work, right? You got to spoil my lifestyle if you're hanging around the apartment. <laughs> okay. So I'm like, wow, what do I do? So literally, I was in the American Club one day, uh, you know, uh, in in the coffee line, and I bumped into a gentleman. And he says, "What are you doing?" I says, "Look, I'm I'm trying to retire." <laughs> and he's like, "Really? You're too young to retire?" I said, "No, that's what my wife said." And he said, "Listen, uh, would you be interested in uh, in in being part of uh, Tomasic?" Tomasic organization. And I said, in what respect? He says, they have a, there's a semiconductor company called Charter Semiconductor. They're looking for a senior guy to go in and help them uh, restructure it, grow the sales, and then decide the strategy. And uh, Charter Semiconductor was a, when I joined, is a $1.5 billion semiconductor company with seven fabs, employed about 7,000 people here in Singapore. And uh, run by a, a great guy called uh, Song, Songwe Chia, who's now the, the head of Tomasic. And really, he brought me in uh, and said, look, I want you to help me think through the strategy. What do we do? And it became very clear that Chartered was listed on, on the NASDAQ and at the same time uh, was also listed in Singapore. And it became quite clear that fabs cost a lot of money to build. Every time you build a fab, a fabrication, uh, going to what's called a, a new technology, uh, it cost anywhere between 5 and $7 billion. And this is during 2009. Mm. So finding the down payment of a billion dollars uh, and then committing to $5 billion was quite a tall order when actually you didn't have to do it. You could quite easily have uh, really think about fabs don't move. So the 7,000 people, uh, and they're still here today since 2009, uh, are still here in Singapore under the name Global Foundries. So as part of the team that uh, restructured it, we delisted it from the NASDAQ and we sold it to the Abu Dhabi government. Uh, and it was the second biggest liquidity event after DBS Bank's uh, IPO in Singapore. And then I really got thinking, I thought, wow, this is kind of interesting, kind of getting involved much more on the business side. Uh, and then essentially, uh, I, I fulfilled a promise to one of my old my old bosses at Motorola. He joined Dell and asked me to join Dell and run the smartphone business. And during that time, spending a lot of time with Michael Dell, I realized that, you know, after 25, 30 years as a uh, you know, as a as a corporate suit, if you like, mm. and you know, especially in Asia when we're doing our multitude of conference calls late at night back to the yep. US. Yep. Uh, you know, I'm I'm thinking, wow, do I really want to retire and do this? And having way back in my early day uh, ran a very small business, a cheese and wine store, uh, I thought, wow, I have to, uh, I have to run my own business. I have to really get into the. In, into the into the you know back into being an entrepreneur and really do something interesting right because it, it, you know at certain times in life you kind of you kind of hit your mid 40s and you go 
you know, what's my legacy going to be? And, you know, legacy, you know, Motorola and Dell and Microsoft's kind of interesting. But at some point in life, you really want to do something different. And you don't want to be going through the corporate grind every day. You're going to be driving at that point, you know, doubles up the AYE in Jurong, you know, and that gets pretty tiring when you're kind of stuck in traffic and, uh, you know, day after day. So the thing that really interested me, and, you know, I always think about what connecting the dots and looking back, if you ever listen to Steve Jobs's commence, commencement speech at Stanford, life is really all about connecting the dots. And, you know, we all understand Steve Jobs, how he connected the dots. Uh, you know, his father, his parents were Syrian refugees. Uh, <clears throat> he was he was the, essentially adopted by a family, and the family promised his, his birth parents, the Syrians, that he would definitely go to university. He went to university, but he felt so guilty about it that he only literally uh, went to classes, which you can in the US, you can just walk into classes, take classes, but you don't have to pay unless you take the exams and you get a certificate. And a little bit of myself, when I kind of look back is... Uh, I'm a scientist, so data's kind of really interesting to me. I was a physicist and, and mm -hmm. a coder. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I started, I ran my own business uh, in terms of very early on, 1984, cheese and wine. And then I stopped and I sold the business because I really didn't know enough about business. This is England, 1984, very conservative, 18% uh, interest rates, very hard to make money. And uh, I decided at that point I needed to learn more about business. And I kind of forgot about it through my journeys around Asia. And then I really sat down and thought, wow, so if I'm to do my business, what do I do? And I thought, what is the biggest challenge facing CEOs or guys like myself running P&Ls? It's really understanding what a customer's thinking, what are your competitors' customers thinking? Uh, you know, you kind of do market research and it's automatically six months out of date, or is it accurate? Uh, you know, you're taking a sample of the population as opposed to a census understand the heartbeat of a country, especially when, you know, for my background was a lot of was consumer electronics, uh, very fast moving, people's, uh, you know, affinities change very quickly. So I really thought that, uh, you know, back about eight years ago, I, I, I was working on this with, with my co-founder, Rene, and we spent five years developing what's now known as an artificial intelligence engine. Uh, in, in today's speak, we'd call it deep learning. And really, as we did our five years of, of development and built the algorithm, we really then decided to look around and find out, you know, where, where would it fit? What, what kind of customers would really want to take a, a machine intelligent platform and really use it to start to predict human behavior? So, so tell us a bit about uh, this evolution of AI itself. I mean, it's, it's a term that's risen up in the industry. Yeah. We make our assumptions about what the word means. We make our probably wrong connections between between AI and machine learning and other things, yes. and about big data and the role that it plays. Yeah. Very quickly for the layman, just give us one sentence of each descriptive, yeah. you know, one sentence definition of each yeah. one of those terms. Absolutely. So artificial intelligence or artificial general intelligence, uh, which may be 20 or 30 years off, is really when a machine can cognitively make the same decisions as a, as a human being, automated. Now, within the field of artificial intelligence, and it's had lots of what they call dark winters from when it started in 1956, 1957 with Minsky, mm -hmm. who got together with a, with a bunch of guys, Carnegie Mellon, I believe, and coined the term artificial intelligence and defined it. Really, within general artificial intelligence I spoke about, which is a machine can cognitively make decisions like a human being, there has been some areas uh, under the general umbrella of artificial intelligence, which has been very successful. We think about Siri, for example, and we think about autonomous cars. So you mentioned machine learning. Uh, and machine learning is 
another area of artificial intelligence, but really it's all around pattern recognition and finding patterns in data. So in this case, the machine doesn't really need to cognitively understand what a human being is doing. In this case, the machine essentially is able to find hard to detect patterns in data. And then if we go one step below machine learning, you'll be hearing a lot about a subject called deep learning. Where deep learning is really a subset of machine learning whereby there's two aspects of deep learning. There's one called supervised and one called unsupervised. Siri is an example of supervised deep learning where every single instruction and every single question has been, has been put into Siri and he or she knows how to answer it because the patterns have already been run. And then there's a part of deep learning, which we call unsupervised, where the machine itself will cluster patterns that look like, look like each other. So the area of general, general artificial intelligence, which has been most popular and most widely thought of to be successful, is this area called deep learning. And deep learning is essentially what we do, is we've built an algorithm which can find, let's call it asymmetric or hard to find patterns in data. And that's it, it's quite simple. Autonomous cars is an example of deep learning where somebody's programmed in every single eventuality that can happen when you're driving a car and the machine is reacting to the roads by looking into its database and finding out what do I do in this situation. I guess well, there's plenty of complexity in banks data which we'll get to. I'm, yes. I'm not sure if it's as complex as potentially the, what has to be processed during a car driving itself on the road. But is the progress or the, the our understanding of, of AI and deep learning uh, ultimately pegged to the advancement in the technology itself? Or are we finding that there are deeper, more cultural or conceptual questions we're trying to understand here? It's funny how it's a human-driven technology, but we talk about it as if it's this nebulous thing that we're not really responsible for. Exactly. But uh, exactly. you can hear a lot of people sort of grappling with this uh, social or or um, you know human debate around AI and what it means as opposed to just the functionality or the capability. Yes. Are you finding that clients are asking you, okay, we know what it kind of does, but what do we do about it? What policy do we wrap around it? What governance yeah. do we give it? You know, and every client is different. And I think in the banking sector, because they've been so exposed to regulation, and there are so many regulations in banking, is that uh, the adoption of AI has been very slow, but all of a sudden in the past couple of years, it, it's exploded. And I think what, what has generally happened is that as computing power has got more advanced and quicker and less expensive, I'll give you an example, to, to run two cores or, or a, let's say a, a very powerful PC on Amazon at two o'clock in the morning in Singapore, when you bid for that price, it's about eight cents. So computing power has really allowed organizations to take massive amounts of data and find those patterns. Now, what's lagging in this is that exactly what you said, what are the implications of what we're able to do right now in terms of massive amounts of computing power especially in the banking sector, humongous amounts of data, both structured in databases internally and then unstructured. If we take the analogy that we really don't need any more data that exists, uh, but it's going to keep on coming, is that it's going to get more and more granular. And I think the, the, the effects that's going to have on, on the workforce and economies, and especially in banking, will be, it's not could be, will be very profound in the future. If you think about you know, very large banks, essentially what, and this just 
keep to machine learning or deep learning right now, we don't go into general artificial intelligence, is there can and will be massive automation of routine tasks which take place in a bank. Yeah, and I think what I'm really struggling with, I think, is where do our CIOs of the banks need to be at with their understanding? And this is not to... Um, patronise them or, or to, to criticise them for what they do and don't know. But but how should a bank or a large corporate approach it? Is there a, 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 I'm loathe to say the word framework, but <laughs> banks yeah. love a good framework. They do. Um, but what's the best way for them to approach this that maximises the, the technology for them? I think what we've done is, and it's absolutely correct, is that what... So, first of all, CIOs and, and, and data scientists are massively interested in this area. And the first thing they want to understand is, what is your particular flavor of deep learning or, or AI? And the second question that they, that they, I mean, the most important question is, how can it affect our business? Uh, essentially, if you're in, let's call it the, the sell side or the buy side, uh, it's, a, it's a question of, especially in kind of the sell side, how do I upsell or cross-sell to my customers or how to acquire new customers with credit cards or, or mass affluence or, or, or wealth? How do I sell more to my existing customers? So really the questions they, they ask us is, uh, first question is, how do you know it works? Which is a great question. Number two, how do we adopt it within, as you said, our framework? And what we always recommend is, because what we're able to do, which has been very helpful to us, and we wouldn't be in, in business unless we're able to do it, is we've built a cloud-hosted platform, uh, 10,000 10, servers in Amazon, and the algorithm sits ready to take the data. What we also do is we are a data provider. According to Amazon, and our, and our, our, our database sits on, on, the, on the cloud in Amazon, somewhere between Singapore and Portland, I'm not too sure which, because it's all virtualized, is we have about a database of about 250 billion rows of data in, in you know, let's call it three dimension or a cube. So what we're able to do is go to clients let's say, you know, a large retail bank or a wealth bank, or we do a lot of work with hedge funds uh, in New York, whereby we're able to really take our data set and really find this, call it behavioral intent in a country or, or, or a market around particular products. And, and the way that we've been approaching it with, with especially the banking sector, because uh, with regulation is that we always say is that we will bring our data to you and our algorithm, and we'll, we'll show you our dashboard running live and we will show you, and we're not bankers, uh, we know nothing about the banking industry or your customers, but we'll show you four or five scenarios live in front of you running our unstructured data sets that enable you to understand what your customers are doing. And seven times out of 10, you will agree with the data. Two times out of 10, you'll go, that's very interesting. Uh, wow, I never thought about it, but it's correct. And then one time out of 10, you'll go, wow, I didn't even think about that, but you've kind of knocked the ball out of the park. Uh, and I and and I understand it. And then what happens is we normally kind of work with them for three months, and then kind of becomes kind of the the sixty four thousand dollar question, and it's can I come behind your firewall? Right. <laughs> right? <laughs> and then we then go behind a firewall. We we were in numerous uh, financial institutions, even in Singapore here today, and also in in Wall Street, where we take our algorithm, and we take our data sets, and we go behind the firewall. Uh, and it's at that point they give us servers. Uh, and it's all disconnected from the whole bank. And then we go in, we put an algorithm on, and we put all our data sets, and then obviously the IT guys come and check it, compliance people come and check it, mm. make sure everything's 
absolutely perfect. Mm -hmm. And then what happens is we build like an encrypted tunnel from the database, and they will then dump all the data into this server, and they then immediately cut us off from the outside world, from right. the inside world. Yep. And then we'll run the analysis, and they'll make sure they feel very comfortable with it. And then what we're able to do is, because everything's anonymized, we don't know who the people are, we will then just, just produce signals which then can be taken into the organization and then we can help them find the patterns and the upselling and the, and the cross-selling opportunities. Right. And it's a journey. I mean, it takes you know nine to 12 months on average to go from three months of external uh, taking the data and then another nine months to make sure that you know uh, it's compliance and risk and IT are feeling comfortable and everybody's happy. And so that that's the basic sort of engagement model, which is interesting. So it's, it's sort of a, a pretty intense proof of concept in a real environment, which is, um, you know, probably takes a bit of courage, as you say, but uh, it's worth doing to find out w what works. But tell us some of the ap actual applications. What yeah. parts of the bank or what particular functions in the bank do you think will benefit most from this? Other than, you know, understanding customers better, that that's useful. Yeah. But, but are there particular areas yeah. that you hear the banks targeting, you know, that you think this works best? No, absolutely. And, you know, when, when we're talking to whether it's one of the large, world's largest, uh, you know, wealth banks, investment banks, whether it's, you know, one of the world's largest uh, retail banks, you know, that has, you know, uh, services for mass affluence and, and credit cards, or even hedge funds, we're working with a number of hedge funds, uh, we were able to confidently predict Brexit was going to happen and about 90 days out. Uh, and we were, uh, we were contracted by one of the world's largest sovereign wealth funds, who said to us, is there any way you could tell us if Brexit will happen? This is, they came to us in November. Uh, it would have been, so Brexit was uh, about June last year, I believe. Mm. So they came to us the year before and they said, can you give us an indication using your engine of finding what people are thinking in the UK? Is there a pattern around uh, leave or is it stay? Now, this, this sovereign wealth fund had made its mind up that they thought Brexit was going to happen. So they said, came as an assumption that said, is Brexit going to happen? So what we did is we ran the engine through every single news article and every single piece of information about Brexit, and we ran it daily. So literally 10,000 servers running every night, taking every piece of breaking news, every article, every search, every newspaper that had been uh, talking about Brexit. And what we were able to establish is that with about 90 days out, just before Obama came to, to London uh, last year, because Obama said, don't go Brexit, and that's when it kind, of, it, it kind of peaked up a bit towards Remain, is that very consistently for, from November right through until probably about 90 days before, so, that, so it was in June, so around about April time, uh, we, we said to this sovereign wealth fund, look, according to our data, and it hasn't changed now for, for you know 90 days, there's an 85% probability that Brexit will happen. At that point, they said, stop. Thank you very much. Leave the premises. <laughs> right. Uh, good. Some, and, some big decisions will be made off the back of that kind of data. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, we, we believe, and obviously we don't know, we believe that they, they probably hedged appropriately to make sure that... Because uh, we said when Brexit was happened, two things would happen. Is don't worry about the euro pound, but you need to worry about the pound US dollar, and you need to worry about the DAX. Uh, the, the FTSE will come back, but in the longer term, Europe will be much more affected than uh, than the UK. And now we're seeing, I think, well, it, there's all sorts of developments in Europe yeah. around this nationalist movement, but more more governments think about leaving yeah. the, the euro or the yeah. Euro, the, leaving Europe, um, which is gaining momentum, which is pretty scary, but interesting, I suppose. Absolutely, and it's kind of a slippery slope. Mm. Now, 
if you think about that application of Brexit, we were able to really take external data and understand the state of mind of people. Yeah. What are they going to do? Kind of the, the, the other interesting application, uh, so uh, for, for a very large uh, organization that focuses on, on, on wealth management, maybe one of the largest in the world, we're behind the firewall. Uh, we have all the customer data. And we take our behavioral data and we merge it together. And there's two, two very interesting outcomes because if you think about it in a different way, in the absence of a pattern, it's anomaly. And what is an anomaly in terms of looking at data with customers? Anomaly is essentially a sign of financial crime or fraud mm -hmm. or, or money laundering. So we are able, when we go behind a firewall and we have uh, some use cases whereby we have detected uh, behind clients' uh, firewalls when running their data, significant uh, evidence of, of fraud, uh, malfeasance, uh, insider trading. So so the engine does work in that way. And also, for uh, if you go back to, to retail banking, uh, credit cards. I mean, in Singapore, I think the average person has, what, five yeah. to six credit cards? Yep. So... You know, if you're a large retail bank, and obviously, uh, you know, we have the DBSs and we have the OCBCs and we have all the whole universe of, of, of banks, is how do you convince someone to use their credit card more than the competition? And it is trench warfare in, in the credit card space in Singapore and overseas. So what we're able to do for one of our clients is that we take their internal data and we see that exactly what is the spending pattern for, for, for their customers. So the spending, you know, we know in Singapore that's broken down into like petrol and groceries and fashion and restaurants and dining. That's how the, you mm -hmm. know, the nice guys from Visa and MasterCard kind of categorize the, the spend. So we can look at, you know, one of our clients, we're looking at, they, they have a particularly big spend on a category. But really, that card is not used for any other category. So, so what do you do? It's very difficult to really understand behaviorally what people are doing. So what we're able to do is we're able to let, overlay our, our external data onto the internal data, and we can say that, wow, this particular lady, ladies, expat ladies, are actually uh, spending a lot of money in this particular category and nothing else. But by the way, with their other cards that they have, uh, they're actually spending tremendous amounts on fine dining, mm -hmm. but not with you. So... What we're able to do is then build a marketing message, and we already have the names, the addresses, the telephone numbers, we don't see them, but we, we can actually build campaigns which actually activate and get people to use the card more. So by doing this, we're seeing an uplift on average about 40% in, uh, in, <clears throat> in basically card usage. Okay, so <clears throat> let's, let's start to um, summarize a bit. We're taking this quite large structured and unstructured data, putting that together with some of your other behavioral data as well. Yeah. Um, really trying to create pretty fantastic insights about customers and what they do and also the business more broadly. Mm. Let, let's close then, I suppose, on on your view, I guess. If you do a sweeping view of Asia, this is a, yep. a, a podcast with a, a focus on um, the Asia-Pacific region and, and obviously Middle yep. East as well. Um, tell us a bit about what excites you about this region and what it will do with AI, deep learning, machine learning, and so on. What do you think the future holds for the Asia-Pacific region with this technology? I always think of optimization. And I think that, you know, as places like, let's think about Indonesia, where all of a sudden 220 million people, within five years, everybody, in, and right now in Jakarta, close to 100% smartphone penetration. Uh, in Indonesia, within, within five years, I think most of the population will have smartphones. When people have smartphones, that, and this is Thailand, it'll happen, and uh, obviously China has 865 million people with smartphones. Japan, 120 million people. 
what's going to happen is that once everybody's connected, uh, it's going to become a universe whereby machine intelligence will enable you to do things that you can't even think about today. And in terms, in terms of business, it will enable you to find uh, new markets, new customers. But really, you know, you kind of think, oh, my God, what's going to happen? I'm going to lose my job, <laughs> right? The, the, whole, the whole white collar, uh, you know, the whole structure of white collar work will change. But how we think about it is that what it will do, it'll be significantly make people more creative. It's going to enable people to kind of make the decisions they really want to be able to make. And I think it'll make organizations more efficient and what we call find the white spaces that are very difficult to see right now in the absence of, of, of data. But, but what, what does a bank do with its current existing three, five-year roadmap <laughs> oh. and the impact that it might have on that? Look, I mean, if you think you're, you're an expert in blockchain, if you think about what can happen, why do you need retail outlets anymore? Why does a bank need a retail outlet? You have blockchain for security. You have incredible now unstructured data sets, which are really behaviorally understanding people. I think what will happen is uh, banks will unlock themselves. Uh, you know, there's no way that these incredible institutions such as the DBSs, the OCBCs, the UBSs of the world, the HSBCs will ever disappear. They will just augment and take this technology and kind of reinvent themselves. That's what I firmly believe. Uh, you know, as blockchain becomes much more mainstream and as AI becomes much more mainstream, when you put both together, you get a very powerful, very powerful proposition. And then at the end of the day, what's the thing you really care about? It's the brand, the trusted brand of, of the banks, which has taken hundreds of years to build a brand. I think they'll be able to morph, adapt, survive, and change uh, by encompassing uh, blockchain and AI. And I have to say, of all the industries that I've worked with, and we do a lot of work in, in the US in, in government circles, uh, who are always, always early adopters of technology, a lot of work in advertising and branding. As I talk to, is it the hedge funds on Wall Street or, or retail banks or you know the, the, the guys, the big European banks, there is a massive willingness to change in the industry. And I do believe, especially starting with insurance, I think insurance is one of the most open industries right now for adopting technology. We're going to find out more when we talk about InsureTech through this whole series. Brilliant. Ian, thanks so much for being on the show. Tell us where we can find out more about Scream. www.sqreem.com. Radio, Thank thanks you very much. much. Ian Chapman-Banks, thanks for being on the show. Really appreciate your time and your expertise, of course, as always. That's it for our first uh, chat with uh, Ian from Scream. Uh, thanks for today's show. We really want to thank you all for listening. Uh, be sure to check the latest Next Money news and conferences at nextmoney.org. We'd love to have uh, your interest in being on the show. We want you to be a guest, a sponsor, a producer. Uh, we'd love your con contribution. And we'll speak to you next time on the Next Money Podcast.